Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, the 18th of the 4th. Michael, how have you been since we last spoke? I've been fine, Gary. Thank you very much. How have you? I've been pretty good. And in order to keep the good mood going, Michael, over this Sunday episode, before we actually get into what we want to talk about, which is mostly the hate bill, some of the president's non-political comments on education. Just two good news stories, Michael, that I wanted to to bring out. Okay, good news is good news. As of yesterday, we had vaccinated 1.2 million people, which means we're probably only two or three days off hitting the target from March 31st. Excellent. And uh, what was the target for March 31st? Uh, 1.25 million vaccines administered. Mm, A couple of days. It's hard to know. I mean, the last little while, Monday has not been a good day. Well... Sunday we don't do well, on Monday we don't do well, so we'll probably hit it on Wednesday, so that would be um, exactly three weeks after we were meant to hit it. So actually we're going pretty much the schedule, by a certain metric. Yeah, by a certain metric we are, yeah. A metric admittedly which was ramped down and ramped down and ramped down, but yeah. Good stuff. Great stuff. Yeah. So that's the first piece of good news. The second piece of good news, Michael, is that the unemployment rate has fallen. (laughs) Plummeted, has it? Plummeted to 20, what, 3%? No, no. It's it's fallen from 24.8% in February, which I think we can all agree was not a good rate. No, it wasn't good. In February of this year, the unemployment rate was 24.8%. That fell... And in March was 24.2%. So, you know, Michael, in in normal terms, a fallen unemployment of 0.6% is really good in a month. In a month, the over half a percent decline in unemployment, that would be very good indeed. Slightly undermined by the fact we're at nearly a quarter unemployment. Yeah, the context does slightly change. <laughs> but still, down is better than up. There was another interesting stat I saw in the CSO when I was looking at this. And this is, this is a weird one. When you look at the people who are claiming the pandemic uh, unemployment payment, would you like to just guess how many people the government estimates are actually, let's say, in full-time education while claiming that payment? In full-time education while claiming the payment? 20,000? 8.1% of all recipients. 8.1% of all of the COVID recipients? are in full-time education. Are in full-time education. I wonder how many of them are economically worse off because of COVID. That sounds like a lot. It does sound like a lot, doesn't it? I wonder what the cost of that is. Don't don't ask those kind of questions, Michael. They're full-time in education. They can't be full-time employed. They're only part-time and possibly part-time occasional. Of course, one does hear stories of friends or children or friends who who are doing rather well out of it but you know these are stories and anecdotes you always hear these things it's like people coming in from some foreign country and by the end of the following week the Vincent de Paul has bought them a BMW you know you, it's hard to it's hard to know what to believe and what to is just put down as the the, the traditional fantasies of people looking at people getting money from the state it is actually interesting when you look at the breakdown of the unemployment. So 24.6% of males, 23.7% of females. Pretty pretty even across that. Mm-hmm. 
then when you actually look at the age, if you're 25 to 74, 20.3% of people are unemployed. 15 to 24, 59.2% are unemployed. Huh. In March 2020, the unemployment rate was 21.1%. We've gone to just over 24% this year. And I've never seen a situation where a 3% increase in unemployment seemed so unimportant. No. I mean, in the normal run of events, that would be bad. That would be catastrophic. That would, that would be the sort of thing you'd remark upon and worry about how it could be solved. Whereas here you're just like, actually in a year, that's not bad. Well, context is everything. I mean, a mere 3.1% more unemployed. Like, once you start running into like 20% unemployment, just doesn't really seem real anymore. Yeah, well... Like 59.2% of people aged 15 to 24 unemployed? When you're reading about 46 billion euro deficits, it's hard to see the good news. I think what we've got to what we've got to embrace, Michael, to get out of that, is some of this new monetary theory that I've been hearing so much about. Just print money. It'll be difficult because the EU will start saying things about it. Like, what are you doing? Where did you get those prints from? <laughs> that sort of thing. But you just keep printing it. You just keep going. And you, as long as you never stop, Michael, it should be fine. Well, there is a, there is a, there is a possibility, of course, that you run out of paper. Or wheelbarrows in which to transfer to people when the hyperinflation kicks in. But, Michael, I don't have a lot of savings anyway, so I don't care. Yeah, that's the secret, isn't it? Uh, have, at, at the moment, in a moment when you're facing into the possibility of hyperinflation, the secret is have debt, not savings. Yeah, just max out your credit cards and spend all of your money. Yeah, and buy real assets if you can. Things that, are, you know, things that you might be able to trade or things that would hold value once... That, that is, of course, if you believe that the economy will at some stage recover. But things like diamonds, gold, property... Well, I mean, if, if you don't think the economy is going to recover, you should probably just invest in bullets. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, uh, maybe some kind of compound scenario would be good. No, I, the, the paper thing, I, one, of the, one, one of my favourite moments in the, in the spiraling of the, of, the, of the Venezuelan currency was the fact that the Venezuelans were doing as you suggested and they were printing money. And at one stage, oh, they had, I don't know, they certainly had three different exchange rates. There was the official exchange rate, and then there was the semi-official exchange rate, and then there was the the, the, the semi-semi-official exchange rate, which was kind of close to the real exchange rate. And then they had a kind of a, two competing currencies, like they had the is the Bolivar in Venezuela? Mm-hmm. They had the Bolivar, and then they had the hard Bolivar, and the hard Bolivar was what they were using for foreign for foreign trading. But anyway, they, they ran. They ran, They they got to a point where the using the 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 Bolivar, the cost of the paper to print the currency was actually in excess of the value of the notes they were printing, and because they didn't have their own, uh, they weren't. They didn't have paper production in Venezuela, which was up to the job of producing paper of that quality. Because, as you know, in normal circumstances, you use a very high quality of paper for uh, for bank notes. It's one of the things that makes it difficult to to uh, to counterfeit, uh, because the, the, you you do lots of different things with. It. But you need a high quality rag paper to produce uh, bank notes. So they, 
it was actually costing them more to print the money than the money was worth. And that was an experiment, Gary, in the new monetary theory. Well, it wasn't real new monetary theory, though. Yeah, it's like it, it's not real socialism. It's never the real thing when it doesn't work. But we could. we could If we could get a small printing press from over from, from uh, Frankfurt and bring it in and hide it in the basement of the central bank and just keep cranking out the notes, yeah, why not? Do you know what, Gary? The, the, with the level of quantitative easing that's happening across the EU anyway, I don't think they'd notice if we cranked out an extra 50 billion. I really don't think they would. Also, the Pascal is a great name for a currency. <laughs> the Pascal or the Pascal. Couldn't have, you'd have to be the Pascal. Couldn't be the Pascal because Pascal is already a unit of energy, isn't it? Also, if anyone from Europe suspects us and comes over, we'll just quarantine them in hotels and it'll be fine. Forever. Forever. And do you know what? We'd actually have a, we'd have a pretty decent case in that, that if they were ever to be released, the potential threat that they would present to the, current, to the economy and to the general health of the nation would be so tremendous that we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't allow them to get, ever to get out. It would be a perfectly proportionate response to the threat they represented. So I suppose, do you want to go into the hate speech bill first, or do you want to go into Higgins? Gosh. I know, what an array of choices. Isn't it just... The hate speech, let's talk about the hate speech bill. It's a bit of a... It, it, I think it's going to disappoint everybody. Yeah, I was, I was tempted to call it a curate's egg, but I'm not sure who will actually enjoy it. So for those who don't know, the uh, minister... McEntee has released the general scheme of the Criminal Justice Hate Crime Bill 2021. I'll put a link in it uh, to it at the bottom of the podcast. And what this is, this is the general scheme or the uh, the outline uh, bill that they will be looking to bring forward. Bring it will it will change some existing law and it will bring in some new things. So it will change incitement to hatred, which is actually already a crime here, but this is going to uh, change it and modernize it as they say michael yeah it will add aggravated um offenses to things such as uh, you know assault assault causing harm whereas before you would just be tried for those now you can actually be tried or you when this bill comes in you could face um assault causing um serious bodily harm aggravated by prejudice and that could mean you could get a, a harsher sentence and then they also have a um not a holocaust we've seen in certain countries that they've banned the uh holocaust denial that isn't what we've done here we, but we have put in uh, a piece to this bill which would if passed it would ban the uh condoning the denial or the gross trivialization of holocaust of genocides i think that's a tricky one i mean let's not we'll get into the process of being flippant and shallow about the bill itself in a minute, but there are two examples that just occurred to me immediately. The Armenian Holocaust, right? Now, it is official, it is official state policy in Turkey that the, the Armenian Holocaust did not take place. Mm. They're very, very, very certain it didn't take place, Michael. They're absolutely certain it didn't take place. There are many, many other countries in the world that are fairly confident that it did take place. Uh, it, there are those who point out that it wasn't the only genocide that happened uh, under the Ottoman slash Turkish Empire. Um, the Assyrian Christians got fairly close to a, a good old genocide back in the what, in the eighteen eighties. We talked that be, before. 
what was the what's the story there? I mean, if a prominent Turkish politician, business person, representative of the Turkish community, was to get into a debate and to simply blankly deny that, is there an is there an official recognition? Does it have to be a Holocaust or a, a genocide recognized by the UN? Well, I think they've actually. They've, they may have painted themselves into a bit of a corner here. So it's any act falling within the definition of a genocide in Article 2 of the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Now, when you look at Article 2, it is very broad. So yes. genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such by killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of like calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, that's going to be a political problem immediately. Well, yeah, you, I imagine you're thinking of the Uyghurs. I'm thinking of the Uyghurs, and I'm thinking of, let's, shall we say, um, a government minister, Michael, talking to, let's say, the Shannon about how um, it was terrible that this situation was distracting us from building our friendship with China, I believe was the phrase used. Mm. Is that grossly trivialising? Well, there's doll privilege there, which is protected in the law, in the bill. I know, but it's just an interesting little point. It will also be quite interesting if a minister says something and then is asked about it outside the doll. Yeah. Um, the problem here with the, the Convention and on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, it's actually quite a low bar to genocide. There are definitions of genocide that are much stricter and much harder to actually hit. This, like imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, China is doing that. Clearly, absolutely doing that. So, going to be quite in. And I wrote an article about this, and I did make the kind of flippant point that the only positive thing about this is that Irish government ministers and TDs will no longer be able to embarrass themselves by talking about Xing Yang, because if they speak about Xing Yang outside of the doll, there's a I'd say at least a 50% chance they're going to be prosecuted. Well, let me rephrase that, Michael. They're not going to be prosecuted because this is Ireland. But they'll probably have breached the law. Well, so would, somebody, would somebody be able to take a civil case against them? Well, you'd, have, you'd, report, you'd report it to the Gardaí, and the Gardaí would investigate it and then refer it to the DPP. And that puts you in a position where the Gardaí are going to have to make a decision, the DPP are going to have to make a decision, we all know. Neither of them are bodies that particularly like having to make decisions, particularly not ones that might attract media attention, although, let's face it, yes, you're right, it's Ireland, so it won't attract, attract any media attention, so they'll just be able to drop it. The obvious one, obviously, is the Uyghurs. Um, you could look at what they've done and, and are doing to Tibet. Um, under the, as you say, I mean, there are stricter definitions. Under the definitions they're using, I think you could, you, I mean, you could go to a, a local debate about whether or not the Great Famine was, in fact, an act of genocide. And I think you have a better chance of getting that under, getting that included as a genocide under those definitions than you would in, in other cases. What will also be interesting is it's causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. I can see more than a few TDs arguing that that should cover Israeli treatment of the Palestinian territories. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's actually going to be very easy if you really wanted to, now there's a question of, you know, would courts go with it at all? 
but it'd be relatively easy to get quite a lot of countries to fit into different parts of this. Well, you see, you, what you just said there, you said you, you have said a mouthful, Gary. Depends what the gourds do, and that's when I was reading the bill. That's what struck me about the thing is, I I would like to think that maybe maybe the what I would I thought were the very fine submissions made by the DBI are uh, in the consultation process leading up to the publication of this. That there there are certain things that weren't in under consideration but have been put in now and maybe we had some small role in making them think about that. I'm sorry, I just want to say it seems to me that we're in the position here that a lot of this is going to depend on how broadly the judges decide to interpret the the defence the list of defences or how narrowly they decide to construe them. And you're, I, it's not that I don't trust Irish judges, because I think that generally speaking, they're they're pretty conscientious and they try and apply the law, the law as best as they can see it in front of them. But I, it's never a great idea that you you send something sufficiently vague that you don't really know how it's going to turn out until the judges start to create precedent. So I think the first few cases here are going to be very important. And that will, perhaps to a degree, depend on the temperament of the judge that hears the cases. Yeah, so I, I suppose the most important thing to start off with is who does this actually cover? Yeah. Who is protected under this? And so in relation to incitement to hatred, there are what are called protected characteristics. And basically, if you act with significant ill will, detestation or hostility in a way that could lead to harm or discrimination against a group who has a protected characteristic that will be classed as incitement to hatred. So the protected characteristics in this bill are race, colour, nationality, religion, ethnic or national origin, sexual orientation, gender or disability. Now gender is an interesting one because there were people pushing for that to be sex. But it's not sex. Now, this bill will repeal and replace the Prohibition of Incitement to Hatred Act of 1989. The protected characteristics there, although I don't think they were actually called protected characteristics, I don't think they were called protected characteristics, but that's what they were, were race, colour, nationality, religion, ethnic or national origin, membership of the travelling community or sexual orientation. So that didn't have sex in it either but it also didn't have gender. The concern with gender being included is that there are going to be situations where there is allegedly or potentially discrimination on the grounds of sex, but not on gender because that doesn't come into play. So that might be of interest in some of the trans areas. Yes. Uh, Religion, it says, includes the absence of religious belief as well. And gender includes gender expression or identity, which is what we talked about Um in the last episode where we were talking about the conversion therapy bill and how much of it was actually conversion therapy and how much of it was a pretty wide expansion on that. So the penalty, by the way, if you're found guilty of incitement to hatred, is a um, class A fine on summary conviction, class A fine and prison term of uh, no more than 12 months. On conviction on indictment, the fine... Uh, is the same, but the imprisonment is for a term not exceeding five years, or both. There's a, I don't know what he calls an oddity here. One of the, or we had a lot of concerns, I suppose, or we objected in principle to the idea that um, a crime 
committed against a particular citizen who might who had certain immutable characteristics was somehow a worse crime than a crime committed against another citizen and that the principal concern of the police should be prosecuting crimes in themselves that the assault should be the catch the guy who did the assault the theft catch the guy who did the theft and worry about the other stuff afterwards but one of the big concerns was that they had there was a push to basically abandon the principle of the balance of the burden of proof and they've done something slightly odd with the burden of proof Gary they have they they have so NGOs their big problem with the prohibition of hatred act that is of 1989 was that you can't it's very difficult to convict people on under it because you need to show intent so they didn't want that they wanted a situation where as far as possible the burden of proof was reversed and what that means is in a normal court situation you are presumed to be innocent and the court must prove you are guilty. And it's done that way because common law highly prioritizes effectively the, the safety of the innocent. Now, there are other legal systems that do not make that uh, choice and go other ways with it. But in common law, you're sort of in the, you know, better for a hundred guilty men to go free rather than one innocent man to be punished unjustly. And so the state has to prove it. What you see when the burden of proof is reversed is when you go into a situation, the state will assume you are guilty or it will assume you have done something and you then have to show you did not do that. Now, that can be quite onerous in certain circumstances because the state has unlimited resources effectively. When compared to an individual, you will not have a wide-ranging array of resources normally, so it's just much harder for you to do that. This bill does that. So it gives the NGOs what they wanted, but it gives them what they wanted in a way that they're not going to like it at all. So yeah. what it does is it reverses the burden of proof in very, very strict uh, circumstance. And what that is, is if you have shared something on social media, the court, and it's found to be um, an incitement to hatred, the court will assume you knew it was it would be classed as an incitement to hatred and you spread it knowing that and they will assume because you put it on social media that it was designed for public consumption in that you wanted to show it to the wider world and it wasn't a private communication. But the interesting thing there as well is that the standard to convince the court that that wasn't the case is the balance of probability. Now, most people are probably aware of beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the usual a standard required in criminal cases that it must be shown that something was true beyond a reasonable doubt balance of probability literally means 51 percent or 50 plus anything which that's the standard which would use in a civil case yes you'd usually you'd usually find it in a civil case however in this case i think because they've reversed the burden of proof they went look we've reversed the burden of proof but if they can come back and say more likely than not i didn't know what this was the court will accept that and then, of course, there's a ton of safeguards for um, social media companies. One, one other thing that was interesting, the NGOs and actually the Department of Justice as well, because the Department of Justice at the end seemed to buy into this uh, pretty heavily. And one thing that's actually interesting, looking at what the Department of Justice put forward versus what uh, McEntee has put forward, is a lot of it is just kind of giving them what they wanted and then safeguarding the hell out of it. 
to limit the actual damage that putting it in place would do. If I remember correctly, and maybe I'm wrong here, in, in the initial uh, drafts that, w- that we were looking at, the suggestions or proposals, the assessment of what would constitute uh, hate or incitement to hatred was far more subjective than this. It was, and if you, you might remember as well, the Department of Justice was talking about extending these protections not only to people with protected characteristics, but to people who worked with people with protected characteristics, which is effectively to say that they would have given um, um, hate crime shielding to some of the largest and most powerful NGOs in this country. And moving against them would have been treated as if it was a hate crime. Uh, That didn't make it into this. So this bill does say that the perception of the victim is important when a judge is trying to decide if an offence was motivated by prejudice. It gives a a list of eight things a judge should consider. However, it then explicitly, Michael says, that none of these things should be taken to be proof of motivation in and of itself. However, several of them together may be given weight. Yeah, they're not in themselves probative, whereas I think a lot of the, the push was that it would be probative if it was if there was a perception either by the victim or another person other than the victim who was present at the incident that the incident was racially motivated or choice uh, motivated a hatred to one of the protected classes that that's that subjective perception and as i said not just the victim necessarily but somebody a, a third party that would have been considered by itself to be probative that's not the case here uh which is welcome no it, it, it's not um where they have given the ngos what they wanted is in relation to aggravating offenses so these would be if you are as i said if you are charged with something like assault it could now be assault aggravated by prejudice now depending on what crime you're charged with the increase in the um, the possible penalty varies depending on the exact crime. But if it's uh, some of the more serious assaults can have up to two years added to your sentence if they're um, said to be aggravated by prejudice. Weirdly enough, the bill defines hatred but doesn't define prejudice. And there, there's a lot of working definitions of prejudice from various UN bodies, so it's not a difficult one. It's just one of my pet peeves when bills don't actually define things that are pivotal to them. Because, as I said, there's many definitions and they're all very similar, but they're not exact. And it's just kind of sloppy. I I suspect that there are people out there who will read this and who are more enthusiastic about this kind of legislation than perhaps we are. Who will be a little bit down in the mouth, if nothing else, because you have to wonder. And we'll see as the thing goes. First of all, assuming the bill becomes law, we will see how many of these cases actually get made in court. A criticism that has been made for a long time, but either the Guardi or the DPP, depending on who it is making the criticism, is that there has been a tendency in Ireland, there is at least a perception that uh, prosecutions tend to fall under the, the lower level rather than the higher level, and that they tend to go for the low-hanging fruit. Now, if you're already uh, reluctant to pursue prosecuting cases 
because you're you don't think you're going to be you're going to be able to make the case so you go for a lower level say for example it's a murder case but you don't go for murder you go for manslaughter in fact or indeed you go for aggravated assault or assault with a deadly weapon or something like that because you feel like you can make that and you're, you're not sure if you can make the, the more the more serious case. how often are the guards actually going to invest time and effort in doing what will essentially have to be what well, not maybe a, a double investigation but it's going to involve more work and extra work uh, on top of the primary concerns I, I how much the guards are going to do this i wonder the guards have been put under a fair bit of pressure to start moving on things like this and internally there also seems to be a drive to do things with it so i have a feeling that the guards will come behind this relatively strongly and do it on that basis it will be interesting when the first test cases are brought I and mean, we've seen activist groups in other countries take these laws and find test cases for them find people they know uh, would fall under very specific areas of it and so i'm just i'm interested to see if this can be used in that way and if it will be used in that way i mean the courts could come back with a very wide ranging uh, view of uh, a contribution is or they can come back and say that well we're going to expand that slightly because of constitutional rights or they could come back with something very narrow. And I, I don't know. I would suspect that no one knows. I'd say there'd be some internal ideas. But until a ruling comes down, I don't think anyone is going to have any uh, exact idea. I agree completely. Going back to my, my, my first observation on this was that I think a lot of this is going to depend on the nature, shall we say, the, 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 the jurisprudential outlook and the temperament of the of the first two or three judges that end up having to to consider these cases if for example you get a, a justice who is particularly attached to a strong reading of free speech to, to a free speech uh uh defense on a constitutional basis you may find that they the thing comes a little bit more toothless than it was if on the other hand you get somebody who's more temperamentally inclined towards a social justice reading of the the constitution and of the law then you may get a more constructivist approach to this but i think until the judges start to come back and the first few decisions it's not that judges won't make judges on the basis of the case in front of them and, and, and according to their own lights but we all know that if you get a couple of high court decisions that will basically start to form the direction in which the courts are going to go comparing this bill to the um to the conversion bill that um senator warfield put forward because this is a much more serious matter as in it's much more wide-ranging now the conversion bill because of how broadly it is could be used in quite a wide-ranging um sense but this on the face of it is a wider ranging bill and it also has a similar problem that it looks like we'll have to go to the courts and they'll have to say exactly what's happening here but someone has clearly put a lot of effort into this into putting some level of protection into it and trying to curtail some of the worst impulses with it and i, I can respect that even if i don't like the overall idea of the bill particularly when we saw how the Department of Justice was when it was talking to NGOs near the end of the process where it seemed to have just bought totally in. 
So I'm interested actually in who actually fixed this bill and put those safeguards in. Whereas when you look at Warfield's bill, one, I don't like it because I think it's sneaky. I think they've taken the idea of conversion therapy, added a load onto it. Now that's happened in the NGO space over the last couple of years as well. They've broadened um, conversion therapy as well. And the knowledge that no one wants their name associated to speaking positively in favor of um, conversion therapy. And they've also put many, many things that could be an issue or could not be an issue, depending on courts. And there I don't get the sense that there was any attempt to introduce limits or protections. I No, 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 no. I think uh, that was a conscious, deliberate de- decision. That they were absolutely not doing that. I, I think it is an underhanded bill that is designed to be as broad as possible. Whereas this, I, I dislike. I don't think this bill, I do not think there should be... Um, I, even the genocide restrictions, I think, are slightly laughable in that they don't limit when the genocide was committed. And I don't think they should exist in any extent, but just one thing. So, I mean, I, I wrote an article where I was joking about how I, I would have to stop joking about the um, some of the roaming sackings, um, like of Carthage, because they would meet the definition of genocide. And under this bill, as strictly written, that could get you up to 12 months in prison. Yeah, I mean, Cato the censor would definitely have fallen under the aegis of this legislation because he was agitating for explicitly uh, the destruction of the, the Carthaginian people. I think if I, I wonder if I just started ending articles with um, Carthago de Lenda Est, how long it would be before I would actually be in front of a court. But those are things that I think may have slipped through because I get the sense from this bill that they are trying to limit it even while implementing something I don't think should be implemented. Whereas the Warfield Bill, because both of the cover will get you to the terminology of it, um, and just the way it's constructed, I, I don't see that getting better unless it's substantially rewritten. This seems like someone actually did try and make it better. Um, and I know that's a weird thing to say, because I've, I've spoken quite publicly and quite loudly about my my distaste for any of these bills and how I don't want to see any of them brought in in relation to hate crime or hate speech. And I'm not terribly fond of the minister for bringing them in, but at the same time, you know, I think it is important to recognize that if we, this is not as bad as what we, as what the NGOs wanted. I think this could have been a lot worse. And I think, I think the, the, the use, for example, of the, the balance of probability as a defense, I think is important. I think the, the removal of this, of the probative value of the subject, of the subjective nature of the, of the aggravation, I think that's important. I think the extent to which the defense, the 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 the, the clearly iterated defenses that are available, um, I think that's important. No, I think this could have been a lot worse. I prefer it what it didn't exist, but if it has to exist, this isn't too bad. As I said, we'll still lobby against it. Absolutely, we're not going to accept it, but. I, it's good to kind of know where they're coming from and, and what to expect if you fail. I, the balance of probability thing in relation to the reversal of the burden of proof, I think, is is probably the section that most looks like, okay, we're going to do this, but we are aware of the issues with this. So we're going to do it in such a way that we're going to... We're, we're going to tr- they came up with kind of an innovative res- way of of drawing, drawing the Vemin out of what was a pretty bad idea. I mean, they, they did. Uh, it is legitimately an interesting idea as well. Um, 
but we will see we, we will see where it goes but that is that is the bill as it is now um we've no idea what the kind of speed we're looking at for adoption of this is or when it will actually move forward but we will um we will see i mean there had been people saying that this would be done by summer that seems unlikely yeah, at this stage yeah everything everything seems to be moving I'm not quite if not quite glacially pretty slowly up there at the moment unless there's listen if there's a sudden gust of enthusiasm within the three partners in the government they decide this is something we want to get done we think this is super important well, then they can get it done but not without that kind of energy and excitement behind it I know it's probably going to take a little while no, and I mean, all of the internal Finafall energy is focused on trying to work up to Shank Martin, and all of the internal <laughs> Fine Gael energy is focused on looking at Finafall and taking bets as to whether or not they'll actually man up and take out Martin. So everyone is pretty busy focused on Martin at the minute, just not in a way he'd want. Not in a way that will lead him to sleep well at nights. Uh, to be fair, Michael, at this time, at this point, he's probably just looking at them and like, lads, you've had a decade. You've had a decade of doing this. We all know you're not going to. I tell you, they must be sick and tired at this stage of Jim Callan sitting there in the room radiating. I told you, I said to you, let's go. Take him out. Take him out. We have Ender. We have him now. We have... Remember when Francis said said things to the doll that certain people felt were lacking in, uh, shall we say, complete clarity. Enda himself had said things which lacked in certain, had, the doll felt lacking clarity. There was a perfect opportunity to take them out then. Enda was the lame duck Taoiseach. Going to an election, I, I, I talked to two, two Finnegan recently, who basically in the language, in, in the language of the, the people said, we would have got scotched. And Jim was there and he radio. I told you, because Jim was, I think everybody knows at this stage, he was the, the voice most loudly advocating that the time to go to the country was now, the time to pull the plug was now. But Michal prevaricated, Michal dithered, Michal said, we'll wait, we'll wait. And here we are 10 years later. And Michal is Taoiseach, so maybe Michal doesn't care. The problem for the people in Finnafal who want to replace Martin is that it's like the grand old Duke of York leading his men up a hill and then down a hill, except it's a five-year-long fucking campaign. And they're still not over the hill. The, it's not, the, the problem is that they're not coming down the hill. This is the Grand Army returning from Moscow, Gary. They might, they've went, they went in with so many men, but they're leaving. And they're leaving with the prospect of far, far fewer men coming out. There is no sense that this is a man leading his army to a great victory. So... Higgins. Higgins has some strong views, Michael, that you wanted to touch upon in the warm and uh, generous terms in which you usually like to talk about Michael D. Higgins. Well, as any regular uh, follower of the podcast knows, um, Michael D. Higgins is one of my top three uh, favourite people of all time, up there, Aristotle and Jesus. Um, you know what? I don't know how fair it is, but regularly, if you talk to Fianna Fowler's back of the old days, Gary, back in the back in the before times. When me when me, I was now this may be complete Fianna Fáil poppycock, but it has a sense of truth about it. When Mary Robinson was elected uh, president in nineteen ninety, that was not greeted with great 
excitement and, and joy by Fianna Fáil. First time they'd lost the presidential election. And looking at the polls, there was a sense of feckish, even though a hames had been made of the thing with the famous question being asked and, Len and Brian Lennon saying on mature reflection, etc. Another week and uh, they would have caught up, but they didn't. But I, for two years, she wasn't let out of the park. That's a direct quote from a uh, prominent Fianna Fáil TD at the time. Two she wasn't let out of the park. Every statement, everything she was done was monitored and checked that she was not going to go on any skites or skypes or she wasn't going to be doing anything which was going to smack of politics. Perfectly reasonable, Michael. If you let a president go off on their own, they could get lost in the dark or they could fall down. They could. Now, I just want to say, actually, just very quick here, um, in a previous podcast, we were talking about something to do with, I think this was uh, Mary Robinson and, and some issues in the Middle East with disturbed young princesses and stuff. And I, we were talking about it and I said, well, I wouldn't have voted for Mary Robinson. She, wasn't, she wouldn't have been my cup of tea. And we got distracted. I didn't get to finish that sentence. But, but I do want to put, say, say it is that while that's all true, I do actually have a lot of respect for Mary Robinson for the manner in which she has comported herself since she ceased to be president. And I want, I, I, I may have said that on the podcast before, but I'll say it again. She herself is on the record of saying that she learnt a lot from Paddy Hillary about how you treat the presidency, both as president, but also when you cease to be president, that you still have a role, you still, and, and there have been a number of major constitutional issues where I think you and I, Gary, might feel confident enough guessing what her her opinion was about those issues. And there have been major political issues where we might be confident in guessing what her political opinion was. But we don't know because she has chosen to remain silent out of respect of the office of the presidency that she held. And I respect her for that tremendously. I think that she get, she should get... She should get recognition from that. Other presidents, Gary, have not been so circumspect, have not been so respectful of the office. Anyway, that brings us to the, the incumbent uh, of the, the current one. Now, as we know, the president of Ireland is not supposed to get involved in politics. And he's certainly not, I don't think, supposed to get involved in foreign affairs. I don't think he's supposed to get involved in the politics of uh, foreign countries. And now we could argue the exact nature of the north of Ireland, which is technically not a foreign country, but he's quoted in the Irish Times, and I'm assuming the Irish Times is reporting President Higgins, they get it absolutely right. The teaching of children in Northern Ireland separately can no longer be justified. They see, he was on the late, late, Gary. I'm sure you're like me, you never miss the late, late. No, I, I, I mean, the idea of a late, late with Michael D. Higgins on because it was his birthday, that just, uh, that just fills me with up. On the Irish Times, I would say that when they report on Higgins, they reported absolutely correctly because woe be on the journalist who misquotes Michael D. Higgins because uh, you'll hear about it. I have to say, I haven't missed the late, late for many, many years and you can take that how you like. He said that segregating children in the north, according to their religious denominations, is, quote, abandoning them to parcels of hate and memory that others are manipulating them. 
Who in 2021 can justify the teaching of children separately on the basis of belief? Is it important if you talk about ethical present? An ethical present and an ambitious future that you deal with it. I love the way these people don't give a damn for what the parents might want their children, how the ch parents might want their children to be educated. And you know what, Gary? If I was a parent in the north of Ireland at the moment, and the issue of religious donation was looking, my question would be, why is it that consistently, if you look at the top GSE and A-level results in the north, the schools that dominate are Catholic schools. The crisis in education in the north of Ireland now is for poor Protestant boys. I mean, poor, poor white boys, this is a theme throughout the Western world. I mean, we know the, in, in the United Kingdom now, I think there was a report that, on education recently which said that the, the group that's most in difficulty education are poor white boys. That's the question. I'd be wondering why. Then I don't think that desegregating schools, Gary, is going to do a whole lot for that. In fact, the schools that are doing well in the north are what in schools that in the south would be called voluntary schools, mostly. Schools run historically by uh, religious orders, brothers, priests or nuns. I'm sure Michael D would like us all, would like, in fact, I'm sure we know because he said it, that this education system would be completely run by the school, by the uh, by the state. And that's been such a success story for education in the north of Ireland. It's been such a success for uh, education in, in the United Kingdom generally. And I, I, I think is proving to be such a success in here comparatively. But what's his, why, why is he talking about this anyway? Also, Segregating the children in the north is abandoning them to parcels of hate. I'm just curious, Gary, if we were to ask Michael D, would he say that uh, denominational education in the south, if it's a bad thing in the north, surely it must be a bad thing in the south also? Or am I being excessively Kantian about this? Would Michael D advocate the closure of all the Church of Ireland, or the Presbyterian, the Methodist schools, or the Quaker schools in the south of Ireland? I would suspect he'd have to. Parcels of hate. Is he saying that church schools like um, Alex or St. Andrews, Columbus, King's Hospital, Met, you know, KCK, Newtown, Bandon Grammar, these are, these are schools that leave their children with parcels of hate in them? I think that was his, I'm considering this was up the north, I would imagine that's what he's saying. It's so easy, isn't it? It's just, oh, well, that's, it's all about that. It's just because oh, if they all went to school together, then there wouldn't be any problems. Have they considered, Michael, giving love a chance? You know what, Gary? I don't think they have. It's like they learned nothing from the life of John Lennon. I saw that photograph there recently. Somebody tweeted it. You know that the other one where himself and Yoko are standing back while the maid changes the bed? Yeah. It is one of the best photographs ever taken. Bed in for peace. In the same interview, I mean, that's, okay, that's the education league. It's also, I just said, an, an observation that I, I make in passing. It's an oddity. I don't know if you noticed, Gary, if you talk to libertarians in the South, and so I'm not talking about progressive socialist types, but libertarians who are hardline anarcho-capitalists on almost everything. But when it comes to education, they have this weird kink, a lot of them, not all of them, Get the churches out of the schools. Get the church. We don't want, it should be banned. There should be no churches in schools, no denominational schools. And he said to them, but surely isn't that a choice issue? 
if parents want that kind of school, you know, they're paying their taxes, they should be allowed to have that kind of school. Nope, out. And they say things like um, 93% of schools in the Republic of Ireland are controlled by the Catholic Church. Well, other than, well okay, for start, less than 50% of secondary schools fall under the management of the Church or of the Catholic Church. 93%. I love control. <laughs> 93% of the vast majority of these schools are small primary schools in rural Ireland. One, you know, two, two, two three, four uh, class schools. Far more of them than the big schools in the cities. And they're controlled by the Catholic Church. I, I, I think they're playing fast and loose with the notion of control. And when I hear, I hear, I actually do hear people talking about the schools being used as places of indoctrination and brainwashing. Now, Gary, you went to school more recently than I did. I, did you go to Catholic schools, schools under Catholic patronage? I did. And how long did it take you to shake off the indoctrination and brainwashing? Um, shake off implies there was one. <laughs> I mean, the 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 image I have of, of Catholic-run secondary schools in Ireland was going to a priest and saying, you know, I'm not really sure about this whole confirmation thing. I just, I'm not really, not really into the whole God thing. And that priest was going, that's fine. And then I went to my parents. And my parents wisely reminded me that Gary, sometimes by just not saying anything and just doing what's expected of you, you can make a lot of money. <laughs> And I thought that was a compelling argument. You do do well out of confirmation. I did very well. I have to say, you can do very well out of confirmation. It is a good one. It's a one-off, but God, it's a good one. I, I did very well out of my confirmation, I have to say. God, so, I mean, that was when you were 12, was it? But that, that, was, that was literally the response of the school of just, I said I didn't want to do it. They said, why? I said, I don't believe in God. And they were like, you know, that's pretty solid, sure. <laughs> this uh, this obsession they have I mean I have no children Gary I think it's fairly obvious at this stage of my I am unlikely to have children therefore ultimately this is not an argument for me but it's just I find so tedious it is such an easy and ancient thing that oh the schools the schools I think there may well be a serious problem with schools in, in the north of Ireland but I would be looking at the failure of the schools to produce the kind of education that poor Protestant kids in Belfast are are getting the kind of education that they need to give them the kind of opportunities that might make them feel a little bit more positive about their future and the, their capacity to earn money and have a decent life rather than the, the, the nature of the, the catechism that they're getting once or twice a week. But listen, anyway, I don't know if you know, well, if you, if, if you, you came across the article, again, in this not completely non-political way, he 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 observed on on Tukturan that there's enough land to build between a quarter and half a million houses if we wished. Uh, Gary Outen said there's more that there's enough land in Ireland to build several million houses if we wished. Land is not the problem in this. We have one of the lowest population densities in Europe. I think second lowest in in, in Europe after Portugal. It is up to those in Dáil Éireann and Shannon Éireann to do it. 
there is no serious economy by simply fiddling with the demand side of the economy. We have to shape up to be egalitarians. Now, okay, that sounds very like economic policy to me. I, I don't want to be that guy always, Gary. But is it the role of the, the president to be making statements, I mean, fairly specific statements about the nature of the economic policy that the government should be pursuing? Well, I think I would make the point there that a lot of what the presidency is designed to be about is not actually due to constitutional constraints. It's just the norm. And if you don't like the norm, you can expand it. So the American presidency is a very prime example. The power of the presidency has fluctuated wildly from effectively just a figurehead, which something like Higgins, to the imperial presidencies. So Higgins may just decide that he doesn't accept some of those norms and, you know, it's, it's aggravating, but he's not breaching anything when he does so. You know, I suppose my problem isn't really with Higgins, ultimately. Because, as I say, he's been let out. All these speeches will go back to the will go back to government. Will go back to the cabinet for approval. Any of his movements, any of his appointments, will have to ultimately be approved by cabinet or by the Taoiseach. So, if he's being allowed to behave like this, is because he's been it's, this has been given the imprimatur of Michal Martin et al. But I just feel to the extent. The presidency here is completely, it's a ceremonial thing. It does have a certain function, ultimately, which is, it is, I referred to this before, he is the last bastion of the defence of the Constitution. And in all of this talk, there is nothing in this where he talks about actually defending the specific and real concerns that many people have at the moment about the kind of legislation and regulations the government is imposing upon the people which may well be in breach of the Constitution. There's nothing about that. There's nothing about the freedoms that people are being denied, the restrictions. Like, take that case of the lady in that took her case to the High Court and lost. They've kind of come from South Africa. She had had COVID. She had received an AstraZeneca vaccination. She had twice been tested in, over the space of five days for COVID and twice had come out negative, and yet she was told, no, you are going to have to stay in quarantine. That the court decided that it, it was a that this was a proportionate response. Now, ultimately, what you're talking about here is it? It's a detention. She's this is somebody who has is being detained by the state who has not committed a crime, right? That's what this is: detention without crime, preventative detention in some kind of weird way. It's a form of a suspension of habeas corpus, even though. As I say, there's no crime has been committed. And it's been, and this is a very, very serious thing, Gary. It is a very serious thing where the state decides that it can put you in, you don't, you haven't done anything, but for the basis, for some kind of protective basis, we're going to put you in prison. Now, the court has said this is proportionate. I, I don't, how, what circumstances will have to pertain in the future? for it to be for the sense of this that the risk is such that this is disproportionate i think it's really concerning i don't know what point we're going to come as regards COVID at the regulations of the courts where they'd say okay there is a per there is a permissible level of risk i have the sense from this that we have now reached the point where there is no permissible risk at all 
And that's a bloody dangerous position to be in a citizen, if you're a citizen. We, we are all vectors, potentially, Gary, for disease. I do find your uh, point about Higgins being the last defender of the Constitution. You're more sort of funny than anything else. Because for all it's technically true, it's been a while since we've had a president who, I think, actually could serve that function. Well, maybe. In fact, I, I think it's been a considerable while. Uh, I don't think it's seen as something which is the purview of the president, apart from people who like to claim it is very loudly, while also being very firm in the opinion that it should never happen. I, I try to think that. I mean, Paddy Hillary refused to take a phone call because he felt that he was going to put him under pressure to act in a way that wasn't consonant with it, how he, he understood his role as the uh, uh, as president. He was going to dissolve the doll, and that was going to be it. Uh, Carola Doyle, um resigned because of the disrespect shown to him by the Minister of Defence speaking in front of uh, serving soldiers and the President is the Commander-in-Chief and the, he wasn't disciplined by his Taoiseach and therefore he had to go. But yeah, I suppose since then maybe there hasn't been a great deal. Okay, maybe it's a bit naive. I Ultimately, I'm, say, I'm cribbing here of saying he's talking all this stuff, which is, is, in my opinion, not really what his purview is. But this great man, this great defender of freedom, this man who cares so much about the little people, and because of that has been such buddies with Castro and Maduro and Chavez and others, at a time when the freedoms of the people and, and the freedoms guaranteed to the people by the Constitution are really being put under pressure, really being put at stress. And that's the test of a constitution. We talked about this in the last show, Gary. You reach a point with, the constitu with constitutional protections where they become utterly meaningless if the only person that can actually test them and try to test to see if we actually they exist is a wealthy man. And even then, when he takes the case to the court, it, they just keep remanding it, remanding it, remanding it. One suspects in the hope that if they keep sending him back, uh, that eventually the the pandemic will resolve itself. They don't have to come to a decision anyway. He, he is the tribune of the people. He is a meme. Oh, yes, I suppose he is a meme. See, this, Michael, this is what you get for assuming we were going to treat the Constitution seriously. And we can write all of these things that we want, and they can be all lovely, and we can put all the procedures in place. But we're not a country that's ever had any real interest in doing these things. We like our little pretensions to statehood. But, like, it's it's a lot of effort to actually treat things seriously. And oftentimes we just don't seem to be bothered. I think there have been cases, important cases, where judges have come out and vindicated people's rights. Uh, on two or three occasions in the 1980s, Garfield Sturdell tr tried to interview introduce a, a form of rent control or... Con uh, certainly infringements on properties. The court said, "No, you can't do that. We, that's an infringement on the, this man on, on the this, this man's private property rights." Um, there were cases back. There was the the Webb case back in the forties when even in, during an emergency, where the court found against the state when the state was forcing him to use his land in a way that he didn't want to use it. When this, the courts have come out and vindicated the rights of the individual in the face of government policy. So I don't think it's utterly naive to say that this is one of the functions of the central function, a function at least of the courts, uh, to to find in the constitution these basic protections. Anyway, yes, it, it's probably silly and, and comical and naive of me to expect these things of him, but there you go. 
I want I have said it, it has been said, it has been useless. I shall say it again at another time, and it will continue to be useless then. So I think we'll leave it at that for the Sunday show. We will be back on uh, Wednesday. Until then, all the best. Bye-bye.